What's up, SNMA? It's Brittany, your national chairperson of the board of directors. And me and my girl, Asa, are in the lounge today to wish you all a happy founding day. And of course, in this season, a happy homecoming, even though we're all going to be celebrating at home. Look, it might be a virtual homecoming season, but I will still be getting cute. We got Zoom. We can delegate somebody to be the DJ and we can get it popping. Okay. We do not have to let coronavirus, okay, stop us from being great. Cause I will not. <laughs> but anyways, hey everyone. My name is Asise. I'm the national president of the SNMA. I just wanted to stop in to tell you a little bit about what the SNMA means to me. I will say for me and my journey through medical school, just even getting to medical school, SNMA has been a lifeline. Like that might sound a little dramatic, but uh, <laughs> I think we all know what it means, or hopefully we all know by now what it means to have a family that supports you um, through hard times. And that's what SNMA has been for me. SNMA has been the plug. I am so grateful to be a part of the SNMA family and now have the honor to lead it. But enough about me and uh, my love for the SNMA. I want y'all to enjoy this homecoming edition of The Lounge because they got some good stuff for you planned. Have a good one. get into it so hey everyone welcome to snma presents the lounge whether you're in the student lounge the doctor's lounge or you're just lounging around at home get ready to join snma for meaningful conversations on topics affecting minorities in medicine and groups that often sit at the margins of healthcare. i'm student dr isabella and homecoming means to me empowerment and community just getting to come together as black people celebrating our uniqueness and our greatness and having a good time about that. I'm student Dr. Aldwin. This is Dr. Get Fly, Fly's doctor on the block. Homecoming means to me everything. It means black passion, black love, black connection, black empowerment as mentioned, and the struggle okay. for freedom and the struggle to be the greatest version of ourselves. So shout out to all the HBCUs. Homecoming we here, baby. Period. <laughs> What's up, everybody? This is student Dr. Erica Dingle, and homecoming means a couple things to me, but mainly it means family and healing. Every time I've gone back to our yard of Hampton University, I've left enriched. I've left feeling like I could take on the world, and I've left just feeling, I mean, just good. Like, I went to right. church for, for like maybe an entire day's worth of worship and praise <laughs> right. <laughs> right. with my family from Hampton. Right. Hallelujah. 
<laughs> so y'all know what y'all know what time it is though, right? It's time to run the list. Yes. For, for our preclinical students, running the patient list on the wards allows the team to address pressing matters of the day. So in this segment of the show, we're going to be discussing recent events in medicine affecting our communities and the populations we serve. Let's get into it. Homecoming. We love it. I know. It's the homecoming (laughs) episode. It's it's exciting. It's a what an exciting time. And I swear 2020 took homecoming from us, y'all. I don't know how I feel about that. Mm -hmm. We need to shine some light on how how important HBCUs, historical black colleges are to our communities. Period. And there's so many HBCUs, but we got to shout out those four HBCU medical students because they're doing the real work, right? So mm-hmm. shout out to Howard University College of Medicine, Meharry Medical College, Morehouse School of Medicine, and Char- Charles Aldrew at UCLA. Thank you guys for the work and the continued um, efforts you guys have been putting into providing service to the undeserved. We appreciate y'all and we are honoring you guys today in honor of homecoming. Absolutely. Yeah, shout out to the HBCU medical schools. But you know what's crazy too? Like, black people make up 13% of the population, yet only right. 5% of medical doctors are uh, African American. That doesn't make right. any sense to me. Like, why is there such a discrepancy? You know what I mean? Like, that's just, like, we got to do something about that. We got to change yeah. that. It definitely needs to encourage the younger generations. Absolutely. Exactly. Exactly. And like, even too, like thinking about it is even with that small number of practicing medical doctors who are black, though most of that comes from HBCUs, right? So mm-hmm. two of the oldest HBCU medical uh, schools, Meharry and Howard, have combined to produce over 80% of African-American doctors and dentists practicing today. So like, that's just crazy how they're creating more than half of black doctors, even with the small amount that we have. So we have to give them their kudos. They're doing a lot of good work and they're going to be what helps the future move forward in, in terms of having black and brown doctors. Absolutely. Four out of the five black doctors you come across come from HBCU med school. So that's that's yes. really powerful. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, HBCUs are actually important producers of black physicians at an undergraduate level as well. Um, I know you guys have heard of the illustrious Xavier University of Louisiana, which is known. Yeah, it's known for uh, or they're known for success in sending black students to medical school. So, right. Yeah, we got a rep. Gotta As a Howard uh, undergraduate, uh, gotta love and give my kudos to uh, Xavier because that's a big thing, like being able to push so many young people out there to becoming doctors, especially at an HBCU. Like that's just a saying a lot. And so kudos and shout out to Xavier University of Louisiana. And when uh, I was first when I was first going to college, I remember they sent me a shirt. Number one school to send African-Americans to medical school gave me a whole scholarship. That was my dream school right there. Like, I'm, I'm so disappointed. My mom <laughs> didn't let me go because I was too young. She's like, nah, you're staying in New York. I want you going all she the way. She knew he was going to get too miles. lit. She knew he was going to get too lit. Listen, it's HBCU. <laughs> Come on, now she knew better. <laughs> that's, that's probably facts. I probably would have never made it to med school, though. Like, if I would have went, now nah, I would have went, I would have made it still. But yeah, mom, <laughs> mom know me best. <laughs> but shout out to them, though, doing some amazing things. I know they will continue to propel African-Americans into medical right. schools. And I think that's a beautiful thing that, Absolutely. you know, we're ready to come across. Now, y'all know... 
HBCUs and homecoming is a little different, right? So yep. for those that may not know, unfortunately, and I'm so sorry you you didn't get to experience it, but <laughs> no, seriously, it's an experience. I'm um, so sorry for you. So sorry for that man. <laughs> yeah. so, sorry for that man. Um, let's talk about what exactly homecoming is and, right. you know, just the history of homecoming at HBCUs. I mean, it's a deep history, right? So mm-hmm. HBCU homecomings were really um, just intended for alumni to just show school spirit during a football game, right? Um, mm-hmm. And that's actually what it is at most uh, homecomings, even at PWIs. But at mm-hmm. HBCUs, you know, it's got to be a little different. Right? We got to add the twin right. to it. So always, um, <laughs> you got to add that add little spice, some, some Lowry's, that seasoning. We got to add it, right? So like since the 1920s, though, like. Like that college event has grown into something that was a one day experience into like a seven day experience. Right. Mm -hmm. So now you have not just the football game, but you have uh, like the parades, you have the coronation event, you have um, the concerts, like everything is like literally a beautiful experience of just coming as a community and just getting to experience black excellence as a unit and just not having to worry about school for a week. Right. Too. Cause I know that at my HBCU, everything was shut down during homecoming week. I wasn't worried about a textbook. Like literally it's just that one time you could kind of just, <laughs> you could just kind of let go, let loose and just kind of have a good time. So it's definitely grown from what its original intention and it's been doing a lot of good work. And I'm sure we can even talk about the event of coronation, right? Was any of you guys oh, yeah. ever in a uh, coronation or did that event? I definitely participated. Um, I was Miss Sophomore at Hampton University. I will not tell Love you the that. year, but I definitely <laughs> had my had my time um, as a campus uh, campus queen, whatever you want to call it. But pageants right. are so vital um, to the culture at HBCU homecomings and. The big thing with pageants now is you have your Mr. and your Miss of the school. And Ebony Magazine has been doing an amazing job at publicizing for HBCU queens and kings over the last, I want to say, like six years or so. Um, Right. But it just it kind of promotes. Or six years, girl, 60 years. They've been doing it for a minute. Yeah, for, Ebony has oh, been. Okay, there you go. Yeah, 60 years, yeah. my bad. <laughs> yeah, girl, because I know because I was looking at some archives and they've been really publishing a lot of uh, work or a lot of like uh, documentation of HBCU homecomings for a minute. So it's definitely been a, a long time. So every April you're getting um, basically like a rundown of uh, HBCU queens and kings and just kind of celebrating them and their work that they're doing at their school. Now, Erica, I would love for you to continue um, with what you were talking about with being a queen, because I know that there's work that even comes outside of that, right? In regards to like community work and all of that. Yeah. Yeah. So you kind of take on like obligations to create campus initiatives and host and um, attend programs that are off campus. Uh, You can put on fashion shows. I know that was like one of the main uh, initiatives for the Miss Hampton University and Mr. Pirate, I want to say, they participated mm-hmm. in like the homecoming fashion show. We had Miss National Council of Negro Women. Oh, um, yes. One of my, I was involved yeah, in like that. We, we nope. had everything. We had Miss Miss American Red Cross. I was Miss American Red Cross one year. So it just Aww. gives you opportunity for a platform. You know, it's right. really great to get involved and to, you know, just be there amongst everybody. And then you get right. to be crowned in front of 
everyone. of people and take <laughs> right. a walk and you have your court and it's just a beautiful experience. It's one of my favorites, actually. I love that. I mean, but besides coronation, y'all, come on, this is homecoming. Like, let's get into these stories. Like, come on, what's the tea? What was y'all doing out there? You know, <laughs> back when we was still in person, no masks, I mean, shenanigans. <laughs> Aldwin, I mean, come on, first, let's first start because I know you was, I know. I know you don't gotta no, tell me twice. Aldwin was in those mean streets of Atlanta, <laughs> right. Georgia. Why, why I gotta why I gotta do this to me? Like, nah. <laughs> but like on a real so it's crazy, like with homecoming, you know, because uh, as you guys know, I went to Morehouse School of Medicine. Most of my time was spent actually in the books, but I did turn up from time to time in homecoming. Of course you did. Special moments when I needed it. Like we mentioned, toss the book out. Yeah, I tossed it inside of the library <laughs> and just ran out like, oh, we lit, we out here. But just being able to, you know, I don't have any crazy specific moments, but one of my favorite things was just being, being in the yard and just being able to just interact, go up to people, connect, network, you know, grab some drinks, like have right. a smooth conversation, you know, check some shorties out. Hey, yo, show day, what's poppin'? <laughs> the rest is history but i think one of the most important things is feeling like you're, you're just entitled to something great you know and that you're right. empowered in such a special way and that you're in a unique opportunity for yourself and individuals that are surrounding you and i wish that homecoming was every day like not just that day or that weekend but like Listen, every day i would have like, failed we go, come like, on how are we gonna do it every day you want me to fail <laughs> You know <laughs> I think now we feel like that. Like, of, of course, when you're actually undergrad, you don't feel like you want homecoming every day. But yeah. now, right. get, 2020, give me homecoming right. every week oh, true. and I'll take it. True, I'll true. With COVID, it. I will take all the fun I can get. And that's on period. No, for real. But homecoming is really like, I would say, a very memorable time. And it's mm -hmm. definitely different from PWIs because whenever they talk about homecoming, they don't mm -hmm. talk about it in the extent that we do. I remember right. homecoming for me just being like this one time that I just saw people in my space, in my usual campus area that I just never <laughs> saw in my life. And right. just like feeling really like, I guess, like moved by that and empowered by that and just wanting to meet everybody that I could and make all the connections that I could. But yeah, homecoming, I'm not gonna tell y'all all the stories because you know, it may not be appropriate for the air, but just know that <laughs> your girl had a good time. And yeah, that's that's that on that. Nah, you gotta lay down at least one story. Nah, 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 nah. <laughs> I mean, oh, don't be scared. Oh, my story would, isn't my story's <laughs> PG, but it's kind of like go ahead, girl. We gonna hear the PG good, version. Don't, you guys don't need to worry about the other version. <laughs> yeah, we keep it. We keep it Isabella's story on lock. I got her old yes. you. You ain't gonna take that. Thanks. No, but um, <laughs> I don't know if at your schools if you had um, curfew, but at Hampton University, every freshman has to undergo curfew. Um, right for the first like six weeks we had to mm. be in our dorms mm. by 11 during the week and one on the weekend and my freshman year I will never forget we were all getting ready getting our hair done you know kitchen beautician style yes and then I just remember being like eyes free because <laughs> I didn't have to I didn't have to return and you know, it was really amazing going to these, we called them soirees at the time, getting dressed up and mm -hmm. you, the, the ages mingled. Like it wasn't just 18 year olds in, 
you know, the people that were undergrad in in a specific party, like the Qs right. threw a party and, you know, everybody could go. So then you see all of these. Now I'm an old head, so I can say it, all the old heads coming back. <laughs> and it's like, yo, like these people really do come back. They they come back year after year to be with right. their homegirls. You know, it's an experience that you don't get after the four years that you live with each other. You grow up together. and. Right. Both of you used the word empowerment, and that's exactly how I felt when I left. I felt so empowered every time I left Homecoming, um, whether it was a PG or a rated R story. <laughs> right, <laughs> I, right. I still left feeling empowered. So I'm thankful yeah. for my Homecoming experiences. Absolutely. I love that. Yeah. And, and, you know, black colleges, they do so much more than just homecoming. We don't just party, right? Black Mm -hmm. colleges are all about uplift. They're all about getting our people out there prepared. Um, I probably would not be who I am today had I not been a student at Hampton University. And one of the missions of uh, a number of our HBCUs are uh, based in service. And I'd like us to kind of talk about that and how, Right. HBCUs just they they promote service, service yeah. to everybody. And, and it's in our motto. It's in a lot of the HBCUs motto. Right. Like I know mm-hmm. once again, I'm always going to refer back to Howard, no matter what the occasion is. Y'all know, like, even being a whole med student, like the way I always talk about Howard and like put into my my little mm-hmm. personal statements, like Howard has contributed this and <laughs> da, 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 da. like I I never let it go because it's like I can't talk about who I am without talking about Howard. Right. Because it's right. shaped me, molded me in so many ways. So I completely understand with what you're saying, uh, Erica, <laughs> like. You, I can't talk about who I am without mentioning mentioning my HBCU. It, it's just the two Ever. are intertwined. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> but I yeah, agree. I really going into that though. I really want to talk about you know HBCU service based missions. So I know at yeah. Howard um, University College of Medicine, as well as with Howard Hospital, they have the Freedmen's Clinic, um, which is a free just student run clinic, which is affiliated with once again HU Hospital and HU College of Medicine, and they just provide overall care for the community, right? And that includes just giving a lot of screening, different screening tests, um, strong community outreach. And also they've even incorporated some Durham nights and OBGYN, OBGYN nights um, to help kind of bridge those disparities within those fields too, right? So that's like really important, just having like resources like that, like these clinics that can help not only uh, the people within, I guess, the school or even within the hospital, people outside of the community, right? Like people who actually need the, the care. And um we have so many examples of that even outside of HBCUs. And I want to give a quick uh, pin, though, to Meharry, too, because Meharry also, they do a really good thing for Nashville where they give like an uncompensated $26 million each year uh, for medical and dental care to the local Nashville community awesome. at no cost to the patient, right? So I definitely mm-hmm. want to plug that in, too. But there's other, like I said, programs out there that's really helping to emphasize care across the board and care where the person is at. Um, mm-hmm. What do y'all know about, like... I guess, different locations that care can be provided at because, you know, a hospital is not the only place that that can be done or a clinic. Right. Yeah. So there's this thing called a a Confess uh, project. And essentially what's happening with that is an initiative that was started by by an individual to allow uh, mental health uh, education uh, be right. uh, uh, integrated into the barbershop. So oftentimes, you know, when you get in your cut, you know, you get in lined up and everything and you talking to your barber like, oh, my baby mama did this and that. Or, you right. know, mm-hmm. my Knicks is trash, which is true. You know, type <laughs> of things. And all these kind of things that are certainly affecting you. And in a way, it's such a tremendous medium for you to connect 
with your barber and connect with the world within that barbershop and feel right. entitled to something that's very special. And so what this project is doing is essentially just teaching barbers how to interact, how to look at cues, how to help facilitate a positive experience for uh, the patrons in the barbershop, especially in communities of color. And I think that's so, so, so powerful. And for me, I would love to do that in the future, right? Like being a future psychiatrist, being able right. to come to the forefront and say, hey, like, I'm just like you. I'm a physician, but I'm a brother. I got the J's just like you. I talk right. like you. I listen right. to Jay-Z and Nas just like you. You know what I mean? So <laughs> I think that's uh, incredibly important to highlight is that we got to, you know, go into the community. Now, it's great to be in the hospital, but it's also beautiful to actually be there on a one-on-one basis and say, hey, I'm here, like I'm the face of medicine, but also I could be the face of the community too. You bring up a good point, Alwyn, like service is just as important as the learning that Mm. we're doing as medical students. Mm. And I think being in those spaces can kind of help to uh, push the narrative against the mistrust that mm-hmm. our mm-hmm. people have with the healthcare industry. Yes. Um, sh- shameless plug: we were we were graced with the presence of Dr. Maybank and mm-hmm. got right. into some really good dialogue just about the mistrust in the Black community with right. regards to COVID and a, a number of other topics. So, if you are able to check that out, send it to your family members because we want to get our our family members healthy and we want them to stay healthy. Um, But yeah, our, our patients, you know, that are going to look like us, um, they need to be able to identify with us. And Mm -hmm. it's, it's important for us to to occupy those spaces. And to your point again about the barbershops, this is another Avenue. I think barbershops, churches, Mm -hmm. um, beauty salons, where you can actually, plug ideas about screening, you know, sometimes you don't, you don't even talk to your doctor about it if you don't think to actually get screened. And they need the screening the most, right? Like black populations need the screening the most. even Even if we don't talk about, I guess, the disparities, the disparities still exist. Like sometimes we just assume, hey, they're not going through it just because they're not coming in and getting these screenings to know what they actually have. Right. So I do Mm -hmm. think that we need to emphasize and push like, Hey, go get screened for, you know, your blood pressure, go get screened for, uh, your colon and all of these things, especially because according to the data, colorectal cancer and hypertension are the two leading causes of death among African-American males over 50, but yet Mm -hmm. remain undeserved by basic diagnostic procedures such as blood pressure checks or cancer screenings. Right. So it's like, we're suffering it from the, from it the most, but yet we're not getting checked out. So I right. definitely um, agree with your point, Erica, about having to make sure that we go out into these spaces and just make sure that we provide the care. And if it doesn't, if it's not at a clinic, cool. Let it be at a church. Let it be at a barbershop. Let it be at a place where the person can feel comfortable and want to easily just get that care done. So yeah, definitely want to. Just- it just needs to get done. I, right. I can appreciate that. And you you bring up colorectal screenings. We mm. got to show some love to the recently deceased King Chadwick yes. Boseman. And, oh you know, gosh. somebody who was young. Um, we're not talking the age range that right. Right. these screenings 43. usually occur in. He, right. 43 right. years old. Mm-hmm. And right. some of us we just don't do well when it comes to our own personal health. Um, right. <laughs> and I, I, we're not invincible. I wish we did better as a unit, <laughs> but exactly. I'm guilty. Are you Aldwin? Come on. 
Yeah. Being in med school, I haven't seen a physician while in med school until like three weeks ago. Aldwin. But anyway, <laughs> you know, I, 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 it, it should be mandatory. Like healthcare should be free for med students, but that's another topic for another day. But anyway, for another day. Going and back to Especially since we got the orange guy in the office. It's another okay. talk for another day. <laughs> no, no, no. No, 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 no. Let's not talk about that, dude. Mm-mm. And I think also important is like dispelling the myths about, especially like when we talk about colorectal cancer and, you know, going, undergoing that, you know, kind of diagnosis and stuff. For black men, number one, it's like, whoa, bro, you're not doing that to me you know what i mean and i yeah. think it's important to create that discourse that conversation and say hey you got to take care of yourself you know if you're not taking care of yourself then nobody else will and we got to right, beat right. the statistics we got to beat the odds you know and we, right, we can't continue to undermine the importance of seeing our doctors and learning to trust them and understanding that during our most vulnerable times and not vulnerable times they're here to diagnose treat us and put us in a, a be- better position right Absolutely. and it's not easy to be done right especially because we can say that there's not that many black families that have doctors right in their families so sometimes they just don't have that information readily available but thankfully with initiatives like the barbershops and the churches and just Mm -hmm. going to where they're at that should hopefully help to bridge that gap right and get that care that's so necessary um yeah definitely agree but we know we did we touched a little bit on you know politics in regards to uh, or I at least I touched on it. I had to make sure I gave a little <laughs> gave a little plug about Trump. But with that, um, I want to talk about uh, you know the recent passing of the notorious Ruth Bader Ginsburg, right? Oh, Who passed recently? Yes. And, right, right, right. And she has been just such a huge force, right, within all things regarding equality, especially with women's equality. She in- influenced like huge moguls like Gloria Steinman, who's like was a the lead of the feminist mm-hmm. movement, and you know. Uh, she's just done so much in regards to making sure that uh, equality is done not on everything regarding gender, race, no matter what, everyone should get that care. Everyone should get uh, that their voice heard. And with her passing, right, we know that her views and her ideals do not mesh with the current administration. So right. that is an issue. And mm-hmm. um, her passing does have a little bit people um, a little bit not at ease because right. uh, Affordable Care Act was is, uh, something that was kind of in the works or has been in existence under the Obama administration and it's been under recent attack with Trump. Um, And so with her passing and not really having her representation of making sure to advocate for for it, um, I mean, what do you guys, how is this going to affect the Affordable Care Act? I mean, so many people are under this and it, it, what's going to happen, I guess. Yeah, I I actually did some reading up on it because I, I really want to know what the future is for our people. Like, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm right. so listen, all black everything. We got to do better. We got to <laughs> right. lift each other up. I'm on that all right. one tip right now. We got to uplift <laughs> right. each other. But right. no, it, <laughs> under according to NPR, um, at least 20 million Americans and likely many more who sought coverage since the start mm-hmm. of the coronavirus uh, pandemic who get insurance Mm -hmm. through uh, the Affordable Care Act or have Medicare uh, Mm -hmm. could actually lose health care coverage. And that that's that's crazy to me. You know how many people that is? Right. 20 million Americans. So that's New York City plus. 
Right. Yeah. It's just <laughs> this elimination would affect more than just patients. Honestly, right. you're, you're talking right. about insurance companies, hospitals, exactly. doctors, drug like mm-hmm. it's it, it would affect so many more people than I think our president uh, considers. But I'm just I'm, I'm praying till Election Day. I'm just praying. Listen, and and speaking of elections, you know, we got to make sure we go out and vote and put the right people in a position of power to make the right decisions that directly impact us. You know, and right. the Affordable Care Act, as you mentioned, is very, very important to so many individuals across the United States. And for the potential for it to be repealed is so scary and uh, daunting. But we have the power, right. the power, the balls in our court, you know, and we got to move forward positively with this. Right. And, you know, the Affordable Care Act decision was definitely a huge hit. But thankfully, with the hit, there's always a win. Right. So uh, (laughs) we talked about this, I think, a little bit last episode um, with the Crown Act. Right. So that is creating an open and respectful workplace for natural hair. And, you know, Mm -hmm. just a really quick history on that again, in case y'all didn't listen to the last episode. But it was just a uh, a survey that was done between 2000 women, half black, half non-black. The ages were basically from 25 to 64. You have to be employed full-time in an office or a field sales environment, or you have to have worked in a corporate office within the last six months. And essentially they just found out that black women were just, just a lot more likely, right. To be made aware of a lot of things that white women don't have to go through. So feeling like they needed to change their hair from its natural state to fit work. They were 80% more likely uh, was black women Black women were also 30% more likely to be made aware of formal workplace appearance policy, right? Mm. So all of these, these are just two examples, right? But then there's so many other things that comes with natural hair discrimination. So thankfully with that, um, they recently passed the Crown Act to the House, right? Mm. And so now the next step will be, yep, so... Make it a little bit of a move, right? And and mm-hmm. the next step, of course, would be trying to get it to the Senate, but at least they're one step closer to that. And some states have already actually even uh, passed this within their own legislation. So out California, New York, New Jersey, Virginia, Colorado, Washington, and Maryland, they've already had this established. So I guess the next ball is just trying to push it even more forward, right? And have it passed in all states because all states need to be, need, be made aware of this. So, yeah. I love the Crown Act initiative. Um just the idea of ending hair discrimination. Listen, this is an entire topic that could be talked about in an, in an episode in itself. In fact, I right. was graced with the presence of Dr. Magdala Sherry, and we talked about professionalism in the workplace mm-hmm. um, regarding just Black medical students, Black doctors, and the issues we face regarding our natural hair Um and right. it's, it, it's a really, really empowering interview. If you haven't checked it out, please do. <laughs> she she lit me on fire that day. But um, yeah, it was a dope it, interview. It, but it's just crazy to know that we all go through this, and it's it's good to just see. Thank you to the Crown Act, like the people right. who started this, who signed up to participate because we need to move this forward. They've even tried to expand it to Crown 2.0 initiative where they're going to go into systemic racism as well. So they want to also reduce systemic bias Great. and discrimination, reimagine Beautiful. public safety, supporting safe and fair voting access, and even driving economic equity. So they're trying to just push this even past natural hair and just talk about all the hits we got to, we got to focus on, right. In regards to black people and what we're going through. So 
Just want to put yeah, that quick plug. <laughs> I'm glad. Thank you. Because no, it's it's more than just our hair. Like mm-hmm. be right. clear, it's right. you know we're shapely. We wear clothes. We get <laughs> yeah. pointed out because yep. you know right. my skirt's tight. Well, guess what? My skirt is gonna fit like this because this is how I'm shaped, sir, <laughs> ma'am. Chill out. <laughs> like I love that this crown act is being put into place because like oftentimes I hear like you guys mentioned about discrimination happening in the workplace, whether it's your hair, whether it's the way that someone is professing their you know physical identity through their clothes like right, right. I, I, it's just it's just unfortunate like i think medicine should revolve around individualism and letting people be who they want to be if you want to show up with blonde hair like one of our producers shout out deandre i'm about to get my blonde <laughs> hair going and i'm i'm gonna do it too you know what i mean so like do, do your thing don't come for the boss don't come for the boss though <laughs> i'm not gonna come for deandre <laughs> no i'm I, no he inspired me so i'm a, I'm, I'm coming next but anyway but I, I just really truly believe in this and i, I love that it's going to make a uh the health the health workplace more equi- equitable and more fair for all of, all the people that are involved right and honestly i didn't want to be the one but y'all trump got covid <laughs> what what like what's going on he sure does well, he sure does, does you he, know what we know he's not behaving like he got covid he i think he's leaving right now at that way what, what time he check is it, it out 654 he, he left ama it seemed like to me because i would think that he would stay longer i mean you're in that critical range of 70 to 80 years old like why right. what's and obese on? i'm sorry i had to throw it out there they called that man obese <laughs> they definitely called him but it's like but too no. like he, he was getting a whole cocktail of drugs which i don't even know right. are regulated methadone, um, like yeah. Yeah. right and the rem- remdesivir you need to actually be in the hospital for i think it's yep. five days so yep. not really sure what they're doing and then on the press releases and the um the interviews I saw with his doctor, they, they're given such vague information. So, okay, it's a, against HIPAA for you guys. Well, first it's inconsistent, but okay, so it's against HIPAA for you to disclose certain information, but you're out here whole telling us <laughs> right. about his right. remarkable or is it unremarkable um, imaging for his lungs? Like, what are y'all <laughs> right. doing? What are y'all right. doing? And then he's riding around in a, riding around oh, trying oh, to get boy. it in a clown car. <laughs> no, I, literally. It's, just, it's been a mess and all, <laughs> and the people, and all the people in the car is getting exposed too so like bro do you not you got corona those people got families like you exposing them that to that too so like what kind of rhetoric are you trying to pursue in terms of like being the leader of the free world you know what i'm saying like how are americans we, supposed to perceive of that you know they looking at us just crazy. a great I'm example Trump is just a great example of just white people, white peopleing, right? Like just doing whatever they want right. and not taking right. accountability. Like we know with the Minnesota uh, thing we talked about last last episode, Less the guy than. who when it's yep. just got drunk on a whim, decided to go spray paint George Floyd's whole statue. Right. I'm confused. But yeah, like that's another example. And I don't know if we have any real, real updates, but I know Alden, you have, we talked about this before. You mentioned that. What's his hey, name? Because I would love people to know his name. Yo, What's his Daniel- name? Daniel Michelson, you will not ever enter medical school. I pray you will never, ever enter medical school ever in your whole life. But apparently, so apparently he was suffering from depression and from everything that was going on with Mm -hmm. what was going on with the pandemic. And he said he just took a drink and wanted to go out and enjoy himself. And that led him to doing these disastrous acts, which is still unacceptable. But the school stated that he is no longer uh, personally enrolled at the school. 
but they will not provide I mean, any further updates. They better not. Even, if, if he was still enrolled, somebody was going to try to unroll him on their own. I mean, that's what right. it's going to come down to. Either you unroll <laughs> right. or someone's going to try to unroll you by force. So. Yo, we would have flew out there, man, real deep. <laughs> like, yo, you coming out to school, bro, like on some yeah, right. He didn't want it. <laughs> right. He didn't want that smoke. Mm-mm. Um, yeah, I just, I don't, I don't know. I'm glad he's unenrolled and. Yep. And on the flip side I, of the coin, right. As a white person is just getting, just getting bro. out. Right. We have yep. a black woman who still never got her justice. Once again, yep. the name mm-hmm. of Brianna Taylor, who just, there was a, a hearing and they just decided that her death was not even a part of the situation. And actually they're going to charge him about the shots being fired next to a different apartment or the shots being fired in general, but right. no focus on her, no justice for her. Once again, a black no. woman just getting um, pushed aside when other people are accounted for in their own lives. And essentially, if you've been living under a cave, then you probably didn't know <laughs> um, <laughs> that literally someone was sleeping in their home, Brianna Taylor, her boyfriend was also present and police apparently said they had a warrant or trying to serve a no, a no knock search warrant um, to figure out some type of n- narcotics investigation. And so they were looking for drugs and cash and they suspected that Taylor was holding it for an ex-boyfriend, right? So the police claimed that they had announced, quote unquote, announced their presence before using this battering ram essentially to just break into their door. Um, but the boyfriend uh, said that he didn't hear anyone say anything and he just fired a warning shot because he thought someone was trying to break in, right? You're trying to protect your home. Um, right. And then apparently the bullet had hit, like, I think one of the cops in the thigh and then the officers just returned fire, mind you, at the sleeping woman behind him or in next to him or wherever Brianna was located Unreal. at the time. And I'm just, you know, every time I, I say it out loud, it just makes less sense to me. But yeah, y'all, the, the, the summary is just go vote because we clearly have... People of lower, yeah, yep. people of lower intelligence in the office, and so we need to change that. We we definitely need to Absolutely. change that. Let let's let's end this on a high note, though, yes. shall we? Positivity. Right, that was that was heavy because right. our amazing Student National Medical Association celebrated a uh, our Founders Day. So happy Founders yeah. Day yes. to Student National Medical Association, which was on October fourth. And you know what? Again, we just want to say from our homes to yours, because nobody is going to the yard. Uh, All of our HBCUs to yours. All of our HBCUs at home. (laughs) Happy homecoming season. Yes. Yes. Miss Rona's still here, but when when she leave, y'all, it's turn up time. Right. Once again, shout out to the four HBCU medical schools. Once again, shout out to Howard, Meharry, Morehouse, and Charles R. Drew. We love y'all. Thank you guys for doing the work and happy homecoming once again. Before I let go, boom, boom, boom. Hey. Pull up, pull up. Boom, boom, boom. Shorty on point. <laughs> Love that. What's up, y'all? We hope you're enjoying the episode thus far. We want you to check out the blue and gold marching machine of North Carolina A&T State University.
whatever success I have achieved, whatever positions of leadership I have held, have depended less on Ivy League degrees or SAT scores or GPAs and have instead been due to that sense of connection and empathy, the special obligation I felt as a black man like you to help those who need it most, people who didn't have the opportunities that I had because there but for the grace of God go I. I might have been in their shoes. I might have been in prison. I might have been unemployed. I might not have been able to support a family. And that motivates me. So it's up, it's up to you to widen your circle of concern, to care about justice for everybody, white, black, and brown. Everybody, not just in your own community, but all across this country and around the world to make sure everyone has a voice and everybody gets a seat at the table, that everybody, no matter what you look like or where you come from, what your last name is, where it doesn't matter. Everybody gets a chance to walk through those doors of opportunity if they are willing to work hard enough. So everyone, you know, at HBCUs, Black Greek letter organizations are lit. So it's time to sound off for all of the D9 organizations. What's up, that's what I made. My name is Dante Zenders from the New Mutant Chapter of Alpha Phi Alpha Fraternity Incorporated. You know if you ain't first, you last. Shout out to all my Divine Nine out there doing their thing in med school, undergrad, and grad school. It's homecoming season, 06, out. Greetings. My name is Erica Dingle. I am a member of the Theta Iota Omega chapter of the illustrious Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority Incorporated. What's up, y'all? It's Dre, EP in the building, here to give a good shout out to the Smooth Brothers of Kappa Alpha Psi Fraternity Incorporated. I also want to give a special shout out to the home chapter, Iota Kai, down at the U. Yo! What's up, SNMA? And shout out to the Med School Greeks. My name is Chris Gully. I'm a member of Omega Psi Phi Fraternity Incorporated home of, you know, the Q-Dogs. That's what y'all know it says. Um, I graduated from Florida International, so my chapter is 88. Shout out to my home team. And right now I'm in my second year of medical school at UAB in Birmingham. And so, welcome to homecoming season. What's up, y'all? It's your girl, Brittany, from the Jesus Dating chapter of Real Ada of Delta Sigma Theta Sorority Incorporated, wishing you all a happy homecoming. Ooh. What's up, SNMA? This is Faith. I'm from the new Theta chapter of Zeta Phi Beta Sorority Incorporated. I just want to shout out to all my sores, especially because it's Centennial. And you know, 2020 has been crazy, but it's still Centennial, still a year. So let me just do a quick shout out for y'all. SNMA fam, this is Kendra Moore, and I'm Helen from Savannah, Georgia. I'm a member of the awesome, also great Sigma Gamma Rho Sorority Incorporated, where everything is great around these parts. We know y'all don't get to experience the homecoming field this year, so we want to bring that to you. I want to shout out to my sorors. Y'all know what's going on in this guy, and we hope you all have a great time with this podcast, and we hope you all continue to grow in SNMA. Peace out. 
What's good, SMA family? My name is Ashley Silvera from the Gamma Ocron chapter of IOTA 5 their fraternity. Shout out to all my fraternity brothers there at Hong Kong season. Oh, 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 like. We wanted to take the time out to shout out the Florida A&M University Marching 100. Take a listen. this day when you had this day when you have reached the hilltop and you are deciding on, on next jobs next steps careers further education you would rather find purpose than a job or a career purpose crosses disciplines purpose is an essential element of you it is the reason you are on the planet at this particular time in history your very existence is wrapped up in the things you are here to fulfill. Whatever you choose for a career path, remember the struggles along the way are only meant to shape you for your purpose. Welcome back to The Lounge. Today, I'm going to speak to some amazing residents here in The Lounge. So we're going to talk about the distinct differences between HBCUs versus PWIs. As most of you all may know, HBCUs have a different culture from PWIs, and we would like to talk about that today, especially about how it has shaped us as individuals. And so I'm going to allow the residents to introduce themselves. Hi, my name is Suzette Akajani, and I am a second year emergency medicine resident. I obtained my undergraduate education at the University of Miami and completed medical school at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, Texas. My name is Aziz Osho. I'm a second year internal medicine resident at the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas, Texas. I completed my undergraduate education at Hampton University in Hampton, Virginia. I completed my medical school education at Howard University College of Medicine in Washington, D.C. So to begin, what influenced your decision to apply to or attend your medical school? 
I think the biggest thing for me was truly location. I knew above anything else that I wanted to get an out-of-state experience. I was born, raised, and educated in Miami, Florida. And after having gone to the University of Miami, I knew I wanted to get out and experience something else and challenge myself in that way. The other big factors for me were cost and kind of the needs of my family at the time. So I applied pretty widely. Um, I didn't feel attached or grounded to really any place outside of Florida. So I felt like I could branch out and really gain experiences elsewhere. And truly, Texas offered me both the least when it came to cost. It was cheaper for me to go to Texas as an out-of-state student than it was for me to stay in-state in Florida. And that's even with all the scholarships that I had obtained. Um, and I think that's what worked best for my family at the time as well. So those were the big things that came into play. And I don't regret that decision at all. When I was applying to different medical schools and going through the application process, I applied to both HBCU and PWI medical schools. I found that my experiences interviewing at the HBCU medical schools just felt a little bit more comfortable for me as opposed to the PWI. Um, I'm not saying that the PWI medical schools made it feel like it was maybe malignant, but I just felt more comfortable interviewing at the HBCU medical schools. And I think it was mainly because I saw a lot of the faculty, staff, the physicians, the medical students that were there that looked like me, and it made me feel like I was more welcome there. Um, specifically, when I interviewed at Howard, and at the end of my interview day, after I completed all of the activity schedule for the day, right as I was leaving the building, there was a third-year medical student that stopped me as I was walking out, and he introduced himself to me. Um, he was not a member of the admissions or the recruitment team um, affiliated with Howard University. He was just a medical student there. And we just uh, spoke about Howard and just our lives in general and why he felt Howard was such a great institution and just really kind of broke down to me what he thought it meant to train at Howard University for, med for medicine. And that has still stuck with me to this day because I think that's one of the ultimate reasons why I decided to come to Howard. And as a gentleman, he didn't even know me just to take the time out to do that. I thought that was just very genuine of him to do. Um, and it really showed the family aspect of Howard um, and of HBCUs as well, too, that most people want to go to those schools to learn from. In transitioning between undergrad and med school, what differences did you notice in culture and or community? I think the first thing I noticed was just the difference in culture. So I, again, went to the University of Miami and I was used to being around people from all walks of life, all different cultures and all different experiences um, and kind of like a melting pot, so to speak. And I think that while I had found a niche for myself at the University of Miami with a lot of like-minded people, I could still acknowledge that everyone was pretty different. Everyone had different majors and interests and all of that stuff. And I think once I got to medical school, it was kind of like being with all of the nerds at the front of the class all at once. And everyone was super focused on school and didn't really want to focus on anything else besides school. Um, and that's just not really what I was used to. I kind of felt like I wasn't as dedicated or as focused as everyone else. So that was a kind of a, a different experience for me. The other big difference I noticed was a lack of 
organized support for minority and first-generation students. So where I went to undergrad, it was very, very much organized. We had a whole office dedicated to the success of our minority and first-generation students, and that structure was completely lacking at my new institution. So trying to navigate these new problems in a new city and under new pressures was really challenging for me initially, where I didn't really feel like I had resources to go to or a blueprint to follow where I would have had that feeling in undergrad. For me, transitioning from an HBCU undergraduate school to a HBCU medical school, I didn't see much of a difference in the culture. Um, I think that uh, the family aspect is definitely prevalent amongst HBCUs across the country and that everyone wants to be very close with each other. I would say the community aspect was probably more with uh, going to Howard for medical school. And I say that mainly because uh, when you're an undergraduate uh, and you're going through undergraduate studies, uh, there's a lot of people in your major and a lot of people kind of learning the same topics so everybody's kind of sometimes doing their own thing. It's kind of hard to really centralize everybody in one place. As a medical student, there's only but a finite number of medical students uh, in your class that are going through the same thing as you and literally having the same classes or very similar rotation. So you kind of all know the struggles that go along with going through that uh, rotation that you're doing right now or going studying for that exam that is uh, supposed to be the hardest exam in medical school. And everybody kind of relates uh, very similarly to that. So I feel that um, the community aspect is just a little bit greater just going into uh, medical school. And I think that's just on a graduate school level only because the amount of people in your cohort are usually smaller as opposed to if you're in an undergraduate level of education. If you attended an HBCU, why was it important for you to attend an HBCU? Attending Howard was a great experience for me in that it gave me the confidence to be able to be where I'm at now and being able to train and sit among amongst other uh, physicians of my caliber that might not necessarily look like me, but have the same knowledge base. Uh, imposter syndrome is very real and sometimes you can feel like you don't belong. But I felt that Howard really gave me the tools to be able to feel that I belong amongst other physicians that might not necessarily look like me, but I have the knowledge base and the capabilities to be able to achieve, if not more than what they are, at least on the same level as them. I also feel like seeing minority physicians and specifically physicians that look like me uh, practicing medicine in many different capacities on a day to day basis and that exposure, being able to have that exposure um, was just very uh, beneficial for me to be able to have the confidence to be able to practice medicine in the manner that I am now. If you did not attend an HBCU, did you consider HBCUs when applying for medical school? So HBCUs were actually my first choice of 
a medical school experience, I initially really, really wanted to go to an HBCU. I was a fee assistance program applicant. And for anyone who doesn't know what that is, kind of simply put, um, it's a program that you apply for and you have to submit some documentation to support that subsidizes your cost of your application cycle. So the general application fee, the secondary fees, there are resources that are provided to you. The MCAT um, is charged at a lower cost, etc. Um, and along with that came with the majority of programs waiving their secondary fees, which was really something that I needed um, at that time. And when I was very, very excited to apply to the H HBCU programs, essentially none of them waived their secondary fees. And I just wasn't in a position to kind of make that sacrifice at that time. Um, not to say that it still wasn't a desire of mine, but that's kind of what precluded me from pursuing that route. What were the relationships like amongst your classmates at HBCUs and PWIs? So my classmates and I were very close-knit from jump. So um, my class started out with nine Black students, my medical school class, and five of us were Black women. And at our orientation, the way it works is we all met up to go to this like camping site or whatever, for whatever reason, because they thought that would be enjoyable for us. Um, and immediately all of us sat together, found each other, and that was it. From that moment on, we were each other's resource. And there was never an air of competition or anything like that. I always knew that if there was something that I was struggling with, either academically or personally, that I could go to any one of them and they would be a source of support and reassurance for me, um, both personally and very tangibly when it came to kind of helping with study resources or whatever else was needed. Um, when it came to the rest of my classmates, I don't think that I had any issues with them directly. I would, I would definitely say it wasn't like a very close-knit relationship with the rest of my classmates. I was pretty much just close to the Black students, and that was okay with me. Um, but I loved feeling like I had these people that I could sit next to in class, who I could count on to um, catch me up on notes or things that I missed. If I had to miss a class, it was just, it was a really nice safety net to have a feeling like you had a family there in the classroom. And these same classmates of mine turned into lifelong friends. So even now that we've all spread out across the country for our different residency programs, they were, you know, my former roommates and they continue to be my lifelong friends. And that's not a relationship that I take lightly. Man, I can talk about this uh, question for as long as possible, but um, uh, I love all of my classmates. Uh, we're all pretty close as a class. We speak to each other regularly. We have a group chat that we can um, discuss things related to medicine or not related to medicine. They're just reminisce on old times that have happened while we were in med school together and experiences that we've had, funny times, hard times. And I think it's always great to have these kind of relationships with people that you've trained with because they will probably understand a lot of the struggles that you deal with as a physician better than most other people, sometimes even better than your family. Um, I love all of my classmates that I went to uh, medical school with. Um, I wouldn't trade them for the world. Uh, HUCM class of 2019, you guys are the best. Do you feel well supported as a young Black professional? How? And I want you to think about classmates, faculty, leadership. 
most definitely, I feel that HUCM or Howard University College of Medicine definitely provides the resources and the opportunities for medical students to be able to excel clinically and as leaders in the field of medicine. We have a lot of faculty at HUCM that really encourages and pushes the students to excel. Um, I can name a couple off the top of my head, specifically uh, Dr. Esther Forrester in the pediatrics department that she will really talk you up and let you know that you belong in any field of medicine that you want to be in and you are more than capable of excelling. Another physician I had the pleasure of learning from during my time at HUCM was Dr. Terrence Fulham from the Department of Surgery at Howard University Hospital. Going into my third year uh, clerkship, specifically my surgery rotation, I had no interest in doing surgery. Uh, However, I will say that when learning from Dr. Fulham, he actually made me strongly consider wanting to pursue a surgical specialty for the time that I rotated on his uh, service. Um, He really takes time to really teach the medical students and have them critically think, but have them do it in a very open and comfortable environment to really facilitate learning and overall education in the surgical specialty. Of course, I ended up going into internal medicine, but I would definitely say that that was one of my favorite parts of third year, being able to learn under him because he really pushed me as well to be better as a medical student wanting to be a physician. So I think it depends on what I classify as support and where that came from. So when it came to my classmates, absolutely, I felt as though I was part of a club of people who were working towards the same goal. And even though we all had things individually that we you know, were exceptionally good at or that we struggled with, I felt like we were a collaborative community where we were able to provide each other with resources to succeed um, despite whatever limitations or weaknesses each of us had. With regards to other areas of support, like I think faculty for me were hit or miss. I had some amazing relationships with certain members of faculty who were really invested in not only my success, but the success of my other black classmates as well whether or not those individuals were actually black themselves or just took a concerted interest in the success of us as students. Um, There were some people that I think were really exceptional in trying to push forward um, our success. And then with regards to like more of the organized support when it came to the leadership and kind of like the higher ups, I don't think that that was something that my institution did particularly well. Um, Our essentially uh, diversity and inclusion office was relatively new. And I think um, in particular, when one of my classmates who was my roommate and I tried to push forward kind of pipeline programs and and, um, foster kind of the programs through the SMA chapter there, We met a lot of resistance, which was kind of disheartening. Um, It didn't stop us by any means, but we did meet a lot of resistance. And I think that that added to some of that like minority tax of the experience that we had while we were um, there in medical school. Not only were we trying to become competent doctors, we were also trying to pave the way for those who would come after us and make it an easier um, journey to navigate. And we met a lot of resistance trying to do that. So that was a little a little disheartening. Did your experiences and your feelings about being a part of a community in medical school influence your search for residency programs? How so? 
absolutely a thousand percent, 10 times over my experience when it came to being a minority in medical school had a lot of weight on deciding where I would end up and how I ranked my programs that I interviewed at for my residency. Um, I think the, the best way to describe that is kind of touching base on the minority tax. The tasks and work and labor that we do as minorities um, tasks on us um, by the simple fact that we are minorities in medical school seeking out higher education and a terminal degree. Um, we're required to do labor around that. Things like recruitment and retention and interviewing people for, you know, diversity positions, things that our, our counterparts who are not minorities aren't tasked with doing. Um, and I think my experience at my institution really made me feel like the tax was too high and I was only willing to pay it to a certain degree. Um, there was a level of labor that I was that I felt comfortable doing that I didn't feel like would hinder my experience or um, be an added layer or an added obstacle on trying to become a competent physician. And anything above that, I just wasn't willing to tolerate. So that me that meant for me that I had to look for programs where this was already being fostered, where kind of the groundwork was already being done. Either that or the efforts to lay that groundwork wasn't being thwarted and actively undermined or heavily resisted. And that can be hard to tease out like on a very nuanced, you know, six to eight hour interview day. But I really tried to put forth the effort to touch base with the people that were there, like the residents that were already going through the program to get an honest and open perspective because I didn't want to end up somewhere that I would be uncomfortable for four years. That was really important to me and it was important for my wellness. And it was kind of like a I, I had a, a zero tolerance policy for it. Like if, if I went somewhere and felt uncomfortable even for a moment or if I felt as though someone said something that was off color or microaggression or um, those sorts of things transpired and I could acknowledge that and notice that on my interview day absolutely not you were off the list and that was that was it um, and I didn't I didn't shy away from that feeling because I felt as though it was a big commitment picking a residency program and it's it's a commitment that you can't really you know stray away from like once you you match it's, it's a legally binding contract and you have to show up on day one um so i wasn't willing to tolerate anything less than what i considered to be what was going to be appropriate and beneficial for me there was a time during my medical school journey that I was part of a group of students that were helping to develop a new required course in our curriculum that was uh, surrounding the social determinants of health and disparities regarding social identifiers, things like race, identity, gender, etc. Um, and I will never forget this, being in a curriculum meeting, kind of leading up to the approval of the course and the curriculum itself, and meeting so much resistance, not with the faculty members on the committee. I was actually going back and forth with a student who was on the committee, not on, not on you know, the committee working on the curriculum, but the actual standing curriculum committee. And the student was just so gung-ho about whether or not this was important enough to be considered a required part of the curriculum as opposed to just an elective. And I remember sitting there thinking, 
this student and I are literally, you know, like voices were raised, like attentions are very high, emotions are high. Um, and one of the faculty members like subsequently stepped in and kind of interrupted the conversation. And I was like, there are students that navigate medical school never, ever, ever have to, having to think about race, never having to think about ethnicity, never having to think about gender identity, never having to think about sexual orientation, never having to think, think about their economic status. Like, that is crazy to me. And I, I remember thinking like, wow, I imagine that experience is so beautiful. Like literally the only thing you're thinking about is sketchy micro and the test. And you don't have to think about anything else. You don't have to, you don't have to think about what's going on in the world. You don't have to think about your standing in the world. You don't have to think about how all of the lenses of your social identity will affect your entire career moving forward, no matter how well you do on your exam or how many degrees you have. And that that sealed the deal for me. I was like, yeah, no, I'm just, I'm not gonna be walking that walk in residency and feeling this way while working, you know, 80 hours a week. I just wasn't going to do it. And that was important to me. I definitely think so. I feel that I wanted to be at a program that valued community and being close with your co-residents because ultimately, similar to medical school, this is going to be something that you're going through the trenches with your co-residents for, for three, four, five plus years. And you want to be able to feel that you can lean on your residents or your co-residents whenever you might not be having the best day or if you just have questions about things and you might not have the best answer to it, but you can just talk with them and maybe have an idea or get their idea of how they would approach something. And then just overall being able to be around them. I think that's very important. And HBCU medical schools, specifically Howard, did a good job of really cultivating that feeling of community. And that's something that I really wanted to really gravitate towards to uh, my program, UT Southwestern in Dallas, Texas. As large as my program is with the number of residents that we have in our internal medicine department, I feel that my program does a good job of being able to connect residents among each other using subgroups so that whoever's in your subgroup, you usually tend to rotate with those individuals and you get to create really long lasting and great relationships with what qualities about your program influence who you are as a physician today? Influential quality of my program and the way I practice medicine now is the patient population that we see. In the internal medicine department at UT Southwestern, we have different patient populations that we interact with based on which hospital we work at. One of the hospitals that I work at is called Parkland Hospital and is considered the safety net hospital. Uh, and you'll see a lot of underinsured and uninsured patients that come to this hospital to receive treatment. Um, and it's actually a very good opportunity to work with these patients to kind of really understand the ins and outs of trying to treat a vulnerable population. So in an effort not to sound too negative, I think I did gain a lot of very positive and very necessary skills through my experience at my medical school institution. I think the big ones are having dealt with the lack of kind of structured protections and structured resources around the minority experience. I did gain quite a bit of confidence in my ability to navigate uncomfortable situations in the workplace. I think that is something that kind of comes second nature to me, where I no longer feel kind of embarrassed or hesitant or um, 
I don't shy away from having to advocate for myself in the workplace. And that comes directly from having to do that while in medical school. Not saying that, you know, I would have preferred to like, I much would have preferred to not have to do that. But now that I did have to do that and I gained that skill, it's something that I continue to use even through my journey through residency where I'm able to speak up for myself, speak up for my patients in ways that prioritizes my needs and the needs of those who come after me who look like me. And that's important. Um, and along those same lines, I think I have gained the ability to create a safe space for myself, kind of no matter what, no matter, you know, outside of the assigned mentors and kind of the people that you're going to work with as your colleagues, those are, those are things that are outside of your control. I think that even beyond that, I'm able to create a safe space for myself amongst friends, amongst people outside of medicine. Um, and that comes from having to do that. That comes from having to say, you know, these five black women are who I can lean on and who I can trust and even though all skin folk ain't kin folk, I won't like you know pretend that that's the case. I have have kind of honed my ability to tease out who's going to be for me and who's not going to be for me. Who's going to advocate for me when I'm not even in the room? And and how can I foster my relationship with that person? How can I? leave this space as an ongoing protection for both myself and the other person. And I think that's an important skill to have um, when you venture out into kind of your professional career as a physician. You, you know, it's, it's no surprise that you will be the first or the only, and that's not something that I'm unprepared for. I'm very prepared for that. And I am proud of that. I'm proud of all the experiences that I've had thus far. Um, and I don't regret any bit of it. And I don't, I think that, you know, every walk to medicine has, has brings value and has valuable things that you learn along the way. But those are the things that I think have really had an impact on me um, and continue to have an impact on me through my training. So I'm, I'm really proud of that. Thank you again to our amazing residents for a great discussion. We'll be right back. To bring us home, we have the mighty marching hornets of Alabama State University. Go off, y'all.
thank you guys so much for joining us for this homecoming episode of The Lounge. Let us know your thoughts about the discussions we had today by emailing us at podcast at snma.org. And be sure to follow the SNMA on social media to stay up to date on upcoming events like next episode, right? I just told y'all we're going to be discussing the election. This is probably one of the most important elections we are going to have in a very, very long time. And so make sure to reach out because we want to hear your thoughts. Thanks again so much for listening to The Lounge and hope to see you guys next episode.